Season 2 of the Kraken Busters, where we're exploring the Great Sea Monster Crisis of 1987. This is episode 213, The Brink. I'm Keith Pilly. Last week, we went pretty long, looking at the intense action at the site of the face-off between the two fleets, leading up to the Soviet fleet sinking the USS Nimitz with a tactical nuclear cruise missile, after misunderstanding what was going on when the US fleet started fighting off a sea monster attack. This week, I want to flesh out those goings-on a little by switching focus onto what was happening on Air Force One as all of this went down. Now, if you'll remember, as the Soviet fleet settled into position in the North Atlantic, American strategic forces had been set to strat-stat orange the state of nuclear readiness just short of war. As part of the provisions of this standing, President Kennedy and several of his key advisors boarded Air Force One, which then started flying large circles over the American Midwest with heavy fighter escort. The idea, of course, was for Kennedy to be in position to survive a Soviet first nuclear strike and be able to order a retaliatory strike, since one of the key roles of the National Security Advisor was to be deeply familiar with all of the decision trees for the different nuclear scenarios. Juliana Burke was one of the advisors on the plane with him. Quote, It was sick-making at first. I was at work anyway. I'd been there more or less non-stop as the two crises escalated, getting more and more alarmed. And then the wire came in that NORAD had declared Stratstat orange, and I knew what was coming, or at least part of me did. But it was still a shock a couple of seconds later when my secretary said that there was a marine sergeant at the desk and he was there to escort me to the chopper to Andrews to join the president on Air Force One. There wasn't even time to call my husband and kids. We had to go. There was only time to grab the go bag packed with all of the decision tree binders. So we did that and we went. I was sick to my stomach all the way there, realizing what was happening and aching that I couldn't at least talk to my family before it happened. But then we got into the plane, and I went into kind of a high-functioning numbness. The sickness didn't go away, but it sort of stuffed itself into a cabinet in my head. It wasn't helpful. I was here to advise the president, and that's all there was room for in the conscious part of my head. I was grateful that only one of the president's idiot brothers was on the plane with us. Even one was more than there should have been, per protocol, but that's the Kennedys for you, family above all, and don't say the word nepotism. The formal decision-making team on board the plane consisted of President Kennedy, Sekdef Inouye, General Duncan, who was the SAC liaison, and myself, and then, informally, Jack Kennedy, the first brother. We were looped in by radio to NORAD, to SAC headquarters, and the other Air Force plane where Vice President Mondale and Secretary Biden were just taking off for their own orbit. I was relieved that the President seemed to agree with me that we had to avoid escalation unless it was absolutely necessary, even if it meant deviating from all the planned out decision trees in the binders, if it was at all possible to keep this from escalating to ICBMs flying, we had to make that happen. General Duncan on the plane with us and General Bryant at NORAD were pushing for Stratstat Red at every new event. The Soviets angled their fleet to the north, time to go red. Parafighters just took off from Kuznetsov, they could have any ship missiles, we need to go to red, and so on. 
President's idiot brother was with him on this. Just constant, Bobby, you cannot show weakness to them right now. Your weakness will kill us all, he kept saying. The President would just sort of shake his head while his brother kept browbeating him like this. But thank God, he kept listening when I would say that we absolutely had to leave ourselves some flexibility. End quote. Keith here. So, to be clear, the functional difference between Stratstat, Orange, and Red here is the amount of discretion given to commanders in the field. At Orange, there's no firing of nuclear weapons without authorization from above. At Red, a commander could fire back with low-yield weapons if they believed the chain of command above them had been compromised and wasn't able to order a launch. The understanding is that Red means war is unavoidably imminent, or maybe even underway. Anyway, back to Burke. Quote, And then we got the word about the sea monster attack on the Northern Carrier Group. There didn't seem like much we could do. Duncan and Bryant wanted Kennedy to order the ships to try to fight the sea creatures off while staying in formation, but I knew that wouldn't be possible. They needed the flexibility to maneuver around to fight, and for once, Kennedy's idiot brother was on my side. Sekdef confirmed down the chain that Yellen was free to do what he needed to save his ships. But there was one thing that I said then that, well, I think it's the most consequential thing I have ever or will ever do. I said to the president that we needed to activate the hotline to the Kremlin right now and try to talk this thing down, or at the very least, try to tell Premier Gorbachev what was going on. The president agreed, and thank God. Not that Gorbachev bought it immediately. In popular culture, the hotline gets shown as this special telephone. But it's actually a telex hookup that goes through the Pentagon on our end, with some other nodes possible if the Pentagon gets destroyed. Um, sending text, both in English and in Russian, translated by a high-ranking bilingual officer. So, you know, it's basically like sending telegrams. So our first messages were something like, Please be aware that USN activities in North Atlantic are aimed entirely at sea monster infestation south of Iceland. And they came back immediately with something like, this is your latest lie. And we're just like, oh shit, oh no. It went back and forth like this several times. Each time, Gorbachev came back with another round of, you've been lying, why should we believe you now? Jack Kennedy's in his brother's face, hissing that we need to go to red right now and tell all of our forces to shoot back with nukes if fired upon. Each time, I'm barely successful convincing the president not to listen, because we had to preserve flexibility. In the meantime, word keeps coming in that Yellen's reporting that he's having a hell of a time fighting off the sea monster surge. Finally, I had an idea. The hotline's a telex relay. You can send pictures by telex. Let's have Yellen send a couple of pictures of the fight in action that we can turn around and then send to the Soves. The president's for it. His idiot brother's against it, but he's the president, so the word gets sent to Yellen to do it. Through channels, the Admiral's kind of snippy that here are some photos, but please stop bothering him, because Nimitz just got attacked by a couple of new primary-class tentacle creatures. The pictures come through to us on the Navy comm system, just as word comes in that Yellen's going to try to have the Vincennes sweep the tentacles off of Nimitz. They're good pictures. You can see the tentacles wrapped around the bow of the Nimitz plain as day, and in the background it looks like the Reuben James is getting its stern bitten off by a giant shark. It takes a minute to get the pictures recoded from the Navy comm system into the hotline telex system. It's sort of like printing a picture off of one fax machine and then feeding it into another. 
As that's happening, we keep getting messages from Gorbachev saying things like, we can see you preparing your ships for an attack, and we're responding with, we are countering attacks from sea monsters. We'll send proof shortly. Finally, we get the sea monster pictures encoded for telex transmission. Then, as they're sending, it all just happens fast. Flash notification that we just picked up a couple of cruise missiles launched from the Moskva. On a hair trigger, General Bryant at NORAD sends the word to strategic forces to expect Stratstat Red. He's got the authority to send that warning when a launch gets detected, but he can't fully declare it unless there's good reason to believe the president's dead. So this means strategic forces are on the edge of a war footing, ready to shoot the second the president orders it. Duncan and Jack Kennedy are howling that it's go time. It's time to launch. I know they're right by procedure, but I tell the president we should wait to see if the missiles get intercepted. He agrees, and we get word that Biloxi got one of the missiles. But just one. Then the detonation. The voice link to Yellen's CIC makes this weird bark and goes to static. Duncan and the president's brother are apoplectic. Launch. Launch, they say. It's the doctrine. They have nuked one of our capital ships and killed the admiral leading our forward fleet. You have to strike back now while you still can. That moment was the hardest I have ever worked to stay calm. Gorbachev should just be getting the sea monster pictures now, I said. We don't see any other missiles in the air. Even if they do launch, we'd still have the window for a counter-strike. We don't have to go over the cliff yet. If I'm being honest, Robert Kennedy had been kind of a spineless poltroon through this whole crisis, letting his brothers and other advisors push him around. But right there, in the moment when it counted the most, he found his spine. We won't launch yet, he said. Let's see if the Premier got those pictures. He gave the order directly to Duncan to be disseminated all the way through all of our strategic forces, including the ones in the North Atlantic. No shooting back without his direct order, even at the current Stratstat, even if the Russians shoot at you. He ordered a message sent on the hotline. We understand why you attacked Nimitz. We understand what your ship thought it saw on radar. Please look at the pictures we have just sent to understand why our ships are behaving the way they are. Please see our lack of counterattack as proof that we do not want this situation to escalate. We only want our ships to save themselves. And then there was silence from the Soviets. No response for minutes. But no further launches either. Two minutes. Three minutes. No word. President's brother muttering angrily to himself. And then finally the telex started ticking. But we realized it was a different telex, not the one that carried the hotline feed. End quote. The telex that Burke and the other passengers on Air Force One heard sputtering to life then was one connected to their feed from the Pentagon. It was a report from Admiral Benson, in command of the forward fleet now that Yellen was dead, saying that the entire fleet had just gotten a message, allegedly from the French Navy, saying to evacuate as they dealt with les monstres. He was complying, he said, unless there were other orders. Kennedy wasted no time, saying, no, no, do what they say. None of this was apparent at the time. But we, of course, later learned that the French fleet had dispatched a squadron of submarines to the exclusion zone three days before. They'd been hard at work seeding the area with about 12 of what could best be described as 1950s Project Mousetrap bait barges, but radically updated. 
their sonar transducers that attracted the creatures were much more powerful, even more powerful than the ones that the American fleet had previously been using in the cleanup mission. And instead of a barge full of explosives, each of these devices contained a 35 megaton thermonuclear warhead. Their warning, which was an automated recording, had gone out at the last minute to keep the American and Soviet fleets from having enough time to get to the devices and disarm them, while still giving them enough time to get away and not be annihilated in the blasts. As the fleet steamed south, the American fleet, now completely free of the sea monsters that had been attacking it, with the sonar beacons calling them off, French Premier Milot sent messages to Kennedy and Gorbachev simultaneously, advising them that they were about to detect lots of detonations at sea level between their fleets and Iceland, and that they shouldn't overreact. Again, the messages were timed in such a way not to leave any time for discussion. 25 minutes after the initial warning to the fleets, the first warhead detonated, the northernmost. Exploding at sea level, it immolated untold numbers of sea creatures and also sent a vast column of radioactive steam into the sky. It's hard to overstate how much more powerful this warhead was than any other nuclear weapon I've talked about on this show. As I've mentioned, thermonuclear bombs, or hydrogen bombs, are orders of magnitude more powerful than the fission bombs we've discussed before, including the Soviet tactical warhead from last episode. The fireball from this detonation was over six miles wide. The mushroom cloud, which included a lot of radioactive steam, eventually rose to over 130,000 feet in the air. All sea life near the surface of the ocean and at, you know, to a fairly decent depth, within a circle of about 15 miles in diameter, was utterly destroyed. This easily incorporated all of the sea monsters close enough to have been attracted by that device's sonar transducer. Ninety seconds later, the first bomb was followed by another, and then another, and then another, until all twelve had detonated. The eighth and ninth, the closest two to the Icelandic coast, sent blast waves that caused significant property damage in the cities of Reykjavik and Vik, and subsequently blanketed much of the coast in fallout. The eleventh device also destroyed the destroyer Urban, which had stayed behind to attempt to rescue potential survivors from the sinking of the Nimitz. A pair of Soviet frigates also seemed to have been lost in the blast. The prevailing winds immediately started blowing airborne fallout towards the UK, and a similar waterborne plume immediately started spreading to the northeast, where it would blanket much of the coasts of Western Europe, including France's. But it appeared, and has continued to appear for several decades now, that the French action surgically removed the Atlantic sea monster infestation. As Milo told French state television in 1991, we were effective. That is enough. And that is enough for this week. Join me next week as we finish out the narrative part of this season by taking a look at the aftermath of all this. Thanks, and be well.
Cause the bitches let's go